then we get into Hebrews, and that's the last time we'll we'll have a mention there. And that is only to make sure that we understand there's been a major change and a shift here. There was something that went on before. You have men set up and a similitude of Christ to point to him. Uh, but now something has changed. And now Christ is that one that we will look to. And that is a major seminal point, uh, a changeover right there. Uh, all of these high priests, according to Alma, were ordained directly by God himself. And so that they will know, and that is their only purpose, to point to Christ and know what manner in which to expect that Christ will come and, and how he will be. Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. We have a special guest today, and we're going to be having conversation about his recent series on priesthood. So I'd like to welcome back Douglas Hatton. Doug, welcome. Thank you, brother. It's good to so be here. You just, uh, today, uh, Shane and I have been doing a series on temples. Um, you know, what is their place? What is, you know, what is their place today? Should they be here? Are they a thing? Um why do we need them? What was Jesus' role? What was the temple's role? Things like that. I find those to be intimately connected, uh, inseparable from priesthood. And that's, uh, you just finished a three-part series, and you can find that at Teacher in Zion. It's a podcast, either on YouTube or audio-only format, wherever you get your audio podcasts. Doug, what, uh, how are you doing after presenting these, these uh, episodes? Well, I'm doing okay. Uh, I I got a call from our bishop in the Church of Christ Restored the other day, so uh, we're going to be having a conversation. So that'll be interesting. Uh, he's a good brother of mine. I love him very much. Um, so, you know, uh, this whole thing really, uh, temples and priesthood, they're definitely connected, and they were connected in Joseph's mind, and they are definitely connected scripturally, and. Uh, there are certain some things here that uh, we're looking at that I believe are not right um, where the church went off course. And so what we're talking about is attacking a stronghold, really. So that's a serious matter. Um, we never want to have anyone get upset at us, but we want to stay true to God and his truth. And well, that's where we're at right now. Uh, very serious business to look at. Yeah, that uh, that brings up. I wanna, I wanna just start with with this because the the title of your videos where priesthood is it even a thing? So you know that that is going to touch a nerve in our faith culture um, when we look at something so sacred as that and just ask honest questions. This this podcast is always a place we want to be able to ask honest questions without uh, being. Uh, attacked or belittled or feeling like that's out of bounds and something we just don't talk about. It's a place where we can safely examine these things without um, losing our faith in Jesus, but hopefully building our foundation on the correct, um, on him and not on anything false. And so sometimes we have to do these things, but I, uh, I wanted to say that 
what's the most important thing for us as believers in Jesus? What 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 is our purpose here as we walk through these days on this earth? As far as I understand, there's only really two main things that we need to do, and that is to learn how to love God with with everything that we have, and in turn, through the transformation that occurs in that, learn to love one another, and just like you say at the end of all your podcasts, walk each other home, you know, into the kingdom. Amen. That's and that's why I want to start with this as the foundation, because as we go around and, and examine these things, I think it's easy as you see uh, some anger flare up, uh, you see the spirit raise its head, and people quickly forget the number one goal, and that is to love the Lord, as you said, and to learn to love each other and, and to have our heart being transformed in our days here, our probationary state. Yeah. So as we look at these topics, we can't allow the law, the doctrine, to overshadow the lawgiver. These things are Absolutely. all secondary, even even things as holy as priesthood and baptism and all of these things, even baptism, these are all secondary. And even Joseph said, even if you're baptized a hundred times, it's not going to save you if your heart has not right. submitted to Jesus Christ first and made a covenant with him. Yeah. So, and that reminds me of the profound statement that Todd recently made about baptism. And when you go to the Book of Mormon, that's precisely what it is is that the baptism itself is not the covenant. It's a sign or an outward witness of the covenant. And I think that's where one of the many things where we've fallen down over the years is understanding that that covenant is between us and the Lord. And we need to make that covenant. Just going in the waters of baptism itself alone is not the covenant. I, I shared that quote, and I'll, I'll try to drop it in here later. I don't have a handy right now. But I shared that quote uh on Restore Gospel's Facebook page, and man, it just got blasted. And it was so eye-opening to me because there was nothing in that quote that says you don't need to be baptized or yeah. the one baptizing you <clears throat> doesn't have to have authority or anything like that. It simply was making the point that you can't worship the mechanism of the church in baptism without making sure your heart is in it first. And yeah. I, I, to me, uh, I finally was asked, well, sum up this whole message in one sentence. And I said, to me, it just says, don't worship the law over the lawgiver. And I, Amen. I just think that it's good to remind ourselves and humble ourselves that um, sometimes we place priesthood. Well, not sometimes. Come on. We put yeah. priesthood authority over mm -hmm. our love for one another. And that's all that post reminded me of was we don't worship the the law, the structure of the church over loving one another. And that doesn't mean, yeah, you know, things are being thrown out. So you don't need baptism and you can't baptize yourself and all of these things. Like this has yeah. nothing to do with this. And why, why so angry? Why so much anger? Cause it's well, like, well, you're, you're attacking our culture or something. And it's like, well, you know, Jesus came, he was the law. He was the law giver. Mm -hmm. And he's, in fact, he was God himself. He's walking among his people his covenant people and everywhere he went and everything he did, he was breaking some rule. And, you know, it's, it's amazing when you think about that and what it was is they had, they had created so many rules and traditions and things surrounding the law that were in addition to what God originally gave. And I, 
I, I think this is partly the sin of the restoration people as well. This is what we've done inadvertently, but that's what we've done over the years. And, and I think early on, even in the church, you know, and it, it says that um, the Jews, you know, they sought for things they couldn't understand. And, uh, you know, they didn't love just the plain, simple truth. So here we got this plain, simple book. It just reveals the truth so plainly. And yet we've got all these extra things. And, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, whited sepulchers. He talks about, um, you know, denying the power thereof, having a form of righteousness, but denying the power thereof. And I think that's where we are really as a people, not, not intending to, but that is where we are, is that we have a form of godliness. We go through all these exercises. We do these ordinances but we don't really understand the power behind it. We're, we're missing the main thing. Uh, we're just doing the outward things. And this is, I think where the Jews were. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think this is a key component and why it's important. Uh, this, this series on priesthood because not because it doesn't have to, not to that God doesn't use or, or bless through, through men that are seeking him, but as a, as a whole and as a culture, it inherently does certain things that takes our focus, I think, off of Christ and into a ministerial body. And that doesn't mean it's intentional or anything, but but here's a good view. I wasn't planning on doing this, but th this is a perfect example this week, I believe. Let's, let's read this out loud, Doug, and then see how people read into this based on our where we're at as a culture, a faith culture. Sure. You want so me to read is, it? Or you can yeah, read go it? ahead. Let's listen oh, to your voice. Okay. Um, so Todd wrote that many people have talked to believe contrary to what Christ built and established as his church. They view the church as the mechanism of salvation for their fellow man through its various ordinances. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of us, a lot of people just wouldn't have any problem with that idea, but it says in time it became the keys, the authority, the ordinances that bring about the salvation of the soul rather than the blood of Christ which is offered in the new covenant silently lost is the idea that men and women were to come unto the savior, the son of God and enter into a covenant with and through him. The notion that the book of Mormon teaches regarding baptism, being a witness that you have made this new covenant is replaced with a false doctrine that the act of baptism itself is the covenant. So people begin to look at the credentials of the one doing the baptism rather than the brokenness of your own heart in regards to making that covenant with God. So, and the end result, he says, basically, is that, you know, instead of having a new creature in Christ, born again in his image, what we have is members of a, a church that has been corrupted by men and our I traditions. It's good to remind our listeners that maybe are on the restoration or RLDS side that <clears throat> you also on your website have many LDS members. And so when we look at uh, various ordinances, mechanisms for salvation that our fellow man begin to look at, we want to maybe just be really self-centered and, and say, no, we don't believe that. But look, there's millions and millions of people that came from our culture, from from the restored church joseph smith 1830 that believe in ordinances that have nothing to do with the blood of christ and so speaking to our lds friends we we in the rlds maybe think we don't 
go down that road. We look mostly at baptism, but even baptism is a reflection of a changed heart. It says it's the first fruits of repentance. So if repentance isn't made and, and we don't stay on that repentant path, then our baptism is nothing more than showing that we got wet. But if it really shows that we have tried to die to ourselves and we want to live following Jesus, uh, then then that baptism is just a reflection of that. So there's nothing in here that says, don't be baptized. But yeah. uh, almost immediately, uh, comments were put up, uh, you know, Section 83, by the power of the ordinances and the priesthood, God is manifest. Uh, you know, well, well, you can't baptize yourself. You know, you got to have authority. And it's like, does there say anything in this at all about authority? It just says, make sure you're coming to Christ and not just looking at yeah. the church and feeling good about who you are and what church you belong to. Uh, it's just simple to me. Yeah, I mean, the baptism is important. You know, Todd and, and I both uphold the Book of Mormon very highly. The Book of Mormon says, what do you have against getting baptized? Uh, so, yeah, the baptism is important. It's a witness. It, it's, it's part of what we do. Um, if you think about it, the, the bread and the wine of communion, that's also symbolic, it's, it's just something in the outward, in the physical world that reminds us of a spiritual truth, but it's still important. But if you take communion and you're not really connecting with God in that deep fellowship that comes from truly communing with him in a way that is much deeper than just taking bread and wine and saying, okay, this means this and that's it then yeah, you're missing out on something because it's the spiritual component, which is the most powerful and the most important part of it. If you do the outward part without that, without your heart being right, it's meaningless. And that's the thing. It's, it's not that it's not important. It's just that without the spiritual component, the physical component, why bother? Right. <clears throat> and I think uh, this sets the foundation for, for what we're saying. And that is, we can't get caught up in any secondary issues when we look at these things and try to look at them openly and honestly and ask questions. Don't forget the most important thing is, are you trying to rend that veil of unbelief and seeking Jesus with all of your heart? Are you, are you seeking him? Are you trying to be transformed? Are you allowing him? Are you being broken and contrite and offering all of that? So let's, as we look at these things, let's remember the key goal and not to divide over questions we ask or, or look at questions. Uh, so this was a perfect example of how things get out of whack. Uh, in, in the restoration, we have a campground not far from independence and it is owned by a joint group of branches. Uh, I believe they call the central Missouri restoration branches. One of the churches I go to are part of that. And on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, there were some uh, some people that were hurt. Uh, you know, they were asking for help at their camps this summer. And the point was made, if you go to a certain church, you're not allowed to be on the staff at the camp. Not only that, you're not even allowed to serve in the cafeteria. You, you, you can't even touch a dirty dish because uh, you wouldn't want to get cooties from someone that goes to a church with a different name. Yeah. And and yet, it's okay to invite a, a lifeguard to the camp from that's a Baptist or not even, but but heaven forbid. And it, and it, when we see what this means about not putting priesthood and authority above how we treat each other, 
what it really comes down to is that one church with a different acronym in its beginning believes in a priesthood office that we all believed in at one time, just that in this time and in this day that we can still have that priesthood office. That's, that's the big hang-up that you're not allowed to set foot on the campgrounds and serve in any way because of that tiny little hair of different belief. We all believe the same things, don't we? We believe in Jesus, yeah. in the gospel. And 98% the of everything, 98% we believe the same. On uh, Restoration people believe the same. But so to, yeah, we can't to be deny, together. To deny that we worship the church and authority over that changed heart and that love for Jesus and one another, that doesn't mean you have to throw out doctrine or that those things can't be discussed. But when you, when you won't allow fellowship because of what you think, it denies the grace of God is what it does. And it brings a greater judgment on your own head. Uh, I'm just going to be quite honest. The Lord shared with me years ago uh, that how we're under a very strict judgment with him, not because he doesn't love us, or that he that he wants to be strict, but because of the scripture, it says to whom you know much is given, much is required. But then it also talks about that uh, to those who harsh, judge harshly or judge other people, that with that same measure of judgment, the same harshness that you use, the same judgment will be levied against us by God. And that is a sobering scripture that Christ speaks in the New Testament. And it's also spoken in the in the in the Book of Mormon. I'm pretty sure. Um, that's that's if you want grace from the Lord at the last day, you better give it now to one another. Yeah, uh, I was told recently, even pointing out this situation, that I was walking on thin ice because I was judging the hearts of the men that I don't know why they made those rules, and I couldn't. That couldn't be further from that. I'm not judging the hearts of the men. I'm judging this policy that's in place, this action, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter. I, I don't, I don't think I'm any better than anybody that made that. I just disagree with it. And I think it's a, a fruit of what we're talking about today. This, Absolutely. this authoritative priesthood. And we don't, we're not to judge one another, but we are to judge the fruit, you know, and even going back to Joseph Smith, Satan Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, all these original people, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know why they made the decisions they did. We can never know for sure, except where maybe they wrote something in their personal journal. We can get some clues, but we can't judge the heart of men. Only, only God does. What we do have to do, though, is we have to judge whether something is true and of God or whether it isn't. And you can do that without judging the person. Well, let, let me look at a couple scriptures. Um about temples and Jesus Christ fulfilling because because temples are so intimately tied to priest priesthood the beginnings of this concept of priesthood the work of the high priest and, and we've talked about this uh, in our previous so I won't go over all of that but I wanted to show a couple scriptures here and I want to focus on Jesus and his work in completing the temple and completing certain things that priests were doing at the time and so in Hebrews 4, we see that um, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So he's being called the great high priest. 
Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I think this is one of the most beautiful scriptures we have because it says that our God, our creator, isn't trying to understand what we're going through. He went what through what we're going through. He felt the weight of sin and he felt uh, the temptations. And so it says he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And that allows us to boldly go before him this great high priest. And and the yeah. one key is the high priests that were offering sacrifices in the temple were in themselves in very need of being saved by those sacrifices. They themselves were sinners, but this high priest was without sin. Yeah, and this scripture also really touches on our day because it says to help us in a time of need. Are we in a time of need as restorationists? I mean, surely we are. You know, and so we that we may receive mercy and grace. Mm-hmm. And if you want to receive mercy and grace from the Lord, we have to give it. You know, going back to it was some years ago, I don't know if you remember this, where all the restoration branches tried to come together. They rented the auditorium. It was it was a result of the patriarchs that we had that wanted to bring the people together. And you remember that? Yes, absolutely. And I ended up going to a congregation that where they were discussing this. I guess they were discussing the meeting up to the time, you know, about how this would take place. And I think I was in Oak Grove, but I'm not sure. Um, but so I went there and then a discussion began about, well, who are we going to exclude? We need to make sure that we're excluding certain people. And of course, I was going to be one of the people they would exclude, um, not because of my particular beliefs or my relationship with God or anything I'd ever done at that point. Um, I was going to be excluded simply because I was a member of a church that they felt had gone too far in its organization efforts, I guess. And, um, you know, and so all this was going on about, well, we need to exclude certain people. And this guy got up and in tears, he said, you guys are you guys are discussing rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Hmm. And he walked off and got on his bike and rode away. And uh, I went out and met him as he was leaving and thanked him for his words. Uh, He got on his motorcycle and drove away. Motorcycle profit, I guess. Um, (laughs) But I went back in and um, when the meeting was done, I talked with one of the patriarchs that was there. I'm not going to mention his name. Um, and I, I said, hey, uh, I guess I'm one of those people they want to exclude from this. And uh, he, he really looked at me with compassion and kindness. And he said, they don't understand. When they seek to exclude other people, they're actually excluding themselves. They mm-hmm. cannot receive what God has for them when they're doing that. And we, we just got this idea, this very hard, hard edge to us as restorationists. We don't, we think we're loving and kind, but we really aren't there. We got this hard edge where if someone's not doing something just right, or believes differently than we do, that they need to be cut off. And that's what we do is we cut them off. Well, thank God that God himself does not do that. 
I have made many mistakes in my life. I, I'm sure you have. And never has God cut me off completely. He loves me through the situation. He uses things to teach me and brings me to repentance, calls me to repentance, but he never cuts me off. He still works with me. And yet we cut each other off. This is a time of need, like that scripture says. We want to receive that mercy and have that grace. Um, so for me, we need to turn away from all our little disagreements and differences. We need to turn to Christ, our great high priest. Um, yeah. He's the only one that can fix this situation. It's interesting. I think that the cutting off and the limiting of, in fellowship is just is out of fear, out of a false sense of pride that that we are shepherds and that we stand in the stead of Christ. And we've given ourselves those titles, even though nowhere in the scriptures does it say that uh, there is only one shepherd and there's only, uh, uh, you know, we invite people to that shepherd. There's, there's no one that can stand in the stead of Christ. I didn't die for anybody's sins. I didn't shed my eternal blood. Uh, those are things that we say about ourselves. And that's part of this whole concept of priesthood, I think, that's dangerous uh, because we now think that we have control of the church instead of Jesus. And, and that's all I could think of is like, why couldn't you allow someone to fellowship? Well, they're going to pollute the minds of others. Heaven forbid, uh, you know, someone else decides that we can now ordain somebody to a, a word to the office of 70. That That's a dangerous doctrine, right? And we got to protect people or from that kind of mind thought. It's like we're... Where does the Holy Spirit and people's agency come in to believe what they want? That's not our job mm -hmm. as priesthood to, to, to issue control. But I think that's that's the word that comes to mind is control. But um, let's let's uh, second scripture about Jesus in the temple. Uh, this is just making the point here. I, I put the, the whole things here about Jesus going into the temple and overthrowing the money changers and driving them out. And Jesus makes this this statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the point here is he spoke of the temple of his body, it says, and they thought that he was talking about the building, their, their holy building. And after he did die and was resurrected, it says they remembered that he said that. So now he's comparing him to, to the temple, right? Yes. And by extension, then, what, what, are, what is the church called? It's called the body of Christ. Well, then we are the temple. I mean, the New exactly. Testament even says that we're the lively stones that makes up his temple. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, uh, here, here's an interesting thing. It says when Jesus died, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Doug, what is that symbolized in your words? What, what is it? Why? Why would the veil, what was the veil doing and why is this so crazily important? Yeah, only the priesthood, only the high priest, uh, which Alma says priesthood, uh, he, it's the only place in the Book of Mormon that uses that word, uh, but he, he uses the priesthood to talk about the high priest and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. There was a separation between man and God, and this was not something that God wanted. It was something that men chose. Uh, basically, when they were at Mount Sinai, uh, he invited them to come up and to be with him and to prepare themselves. And when that happened, they did not want to hear the voice of God. They were terrified of him, and they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And so one of the most tragic things in history of mankind happened there. And Israel said, we don't want a relationship with God. 
Moses, you go have a relationship. You talk with him and then you come back and you'll, you tell us whatever he said, and we'll just go with what you said. And this is really the essence of our thoughts about priesthood. This is really where priesthood got set up. And this is not what the Lord had intended. And so because of that, they have to, they had to have the tabernacle. They had to have the tent, the tabernacle later on. Solomon would build the temple. But uh, the whole idea is there's now a separation and you need a mediator. So, you know, the great thing about God is, did he throw away Israel? No, he didn't throw them away. So he set something up that was uh, second best. But in that second best, even though it wasn't what he wanted for them, ultimately, it was a teacher. It was a training tool because, hey, there's a separation, but you need a mediator. In time, the true mediator would come, as Hebrew talks about. And that 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 is the renting of the, the veil. There's no longer that separation between man and God. Now we don't have to have a Moses to go to. We can go to the Lord ourselves to hear him. And yet, unfortunately, in my studies, you know, the restoration began awesome. It began with a little boy who, teenager or whatever, goes out in the woods and decides, well, the scripture says I can ask God. And because of that kind of faith, then God could speak to him. Okay, so that was a great start. And then when the early church, before it was formally organized, full of the gifts of the spirit, full of prophecy, full of healings, angelic ministry, and uh, and they're baptizing and bringing people in the church and just all these wonderful things. And then, uh, and everyone could hear from the Lord from themselves. But slowly but surely, what I see is we, I think you, an argument could be made that the restored church after a certain point, continuing on into LDS and even our LDS traditions, is that we kind of started to mend that veil again and erect that well there's certain priesthood to have to go and on beha your behalf and and go between you and the lord and you know whether anyone really fully agrees that that's true or not i think that's that was the practice and that really yeah. was the psychology behind it there's an interesting thing that actually happened in the restoration that uh, we'll we'll speak to in a future date but it actually talks about an event where the veil was lowered again around the priesthood, separate from the people. And I think that's very symbolic in that experience and what happened there as a moment where man had taken things into their own hands and corrupted. And, and really, it's almost blasphemous when Jesus is on a cross bleeding and the veil rends. And that's the price that it cost our eternal God to die, that we want to sew up a veil again and mend it and put one back is really, really unfortunate but you said also in your video when jesus came to deal with the church it wasn't the christian church it was the church of the devil right these people the priesthood had corrupted the temple they were making money off of the people the ark of the yeah. covenant wasn't even there anymore it was long gone yeah uh, this was not the temporary tabernacle that god set up they had added in all kinds of extra sacrifices and that simple idea where Focus on the lamb, taking away your sins, mm -hmm. had long gone away. And so Jesus, yeah, you said that that wasn't, that was the devil's church, right? Absolutely, because the, the priesthood had been completely corrupted at this time. The church, if you want to say it, uh, the Jewish church 
had been corrupted to the point where it was no longer God's church. And what they were doing in the temple, what they were doing in their religion was no longer honoring him. It was, as he said, you know, uh, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. In other words, you're mimicking that you're righteous, but really uh, the substance of it, the heart of it is, is not of the Lord at all. And so the temple religion and all that is completely really rejected at this point. When John the Baptist is risen up, it's all rejected at that point, and he's pointing to the Lamb of God. And so, yeah, uh, you know, it, that was something that the Lord showed me was the corruption of the Jewish people and their religion. Because years ago, I had this experience where I was pondering, well, these changes that were supposedly made to the Bible, like I'm trying to figure out what was changed and all that. And I'm asking the Lord about what changes the great and abominable church made, you know, the Church of Rome. And I, I heard the Holy Spirit say, what about the abominable, great and abominable church of the Jews? And I was like, what? And boy, that I started trying to figure out what that was all about. And even to this day, I'm now learning about it, that that religion was corrupted, so corrupted that when Christ came, he was no longer dealing with the priesthood that God had set up. He was no longer dealing with the religion that God had set up. He was literally with every act that he did and with every word that he spoke, he was assaulting their church and the religion because it was the religion and the church of Satan. Yeah. And that's why they put him to death. It's definitely a pattern and we shouldn't think that, that we are uh, immune from uh, having that same thing happen to us exactly. again, because it happens over and over through, through time. A uh, couple other scriptures here i want to solidify this idea of us being the temple and jesus's finishing work but um here is uh pull this up here let's talk about the day of pentecost and what happened and then we're going to look at something that actually happened in the book of mormon pre-crucifixion which makes you go hmm uh, but on the day of pentecost it says, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, this is a document Shane put together. I love this statement here. They became the temple of the Holy Spirit a temporary communion with God until we are all with him in full glory. I think that's a beautiful way uh, to sum that up. But look at the Book of Mormon experience here and what happens uh, in Helaman. This is pre-Jesus, Nephite type of Pentecost. Helaman's sons, Lehi and Nephi, they were in prison, and the Lamanites were converted. It became more righteous than the Nephites. And it says, what shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be removed from overshadowing us? It says, you must repent and cry unto the voice, even until you shall have faith in Christ, which was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and by Zizram. When you shall do this, the cloud of darkness shall be removed from overshadowing you. And it came to pass that they did all begin to cry unto the voice of him which had shook the earth. Yea, they did cry even until the cloud of darkness was dispersed. And it came to pass when they cast their eyes about and saw the cloud of darkness was dispersed from overshadowing them, they saw that they were encircled about, yea, every soul. 
by a pillar of fire. And Nephi and Lehi were in the midst of them. They were, yea, they were encircled about. Yea, they were as in, as if in the midst of a flaming fire, and it did harm them not. And behold, the Holy Spirit of God did come down from heaven and did enter into their hearts, and they were filled as with fire, and they could speak forth marvelous words. Amen. Is that not a beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there's I there's that idea of the indwelling, and it says that the 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 veil that we need to do it uses that language in the Book of Mormon. It's awesome is to rend the veil of unbelief, and that's the that's the rub for us today. It's not that we don't have access to the Holy of Holies. Our unbelief prevents the access to that indwelling Holy Spirit, right, or baptism yeah. of fire. You know, you, you said that scripture is pre Jesus. And, uh, well, you know, before he came in the flesh, chronologically, but, yeah, according to our limited time. <laughs> yes. But that, that's the interesting thing about God, because being in eternity, you know, in the book of revelation, it says that, uh, you know, Christ was, uh, slain, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth. Yeah. Uh, and so to some degree, he's been available from the beginning, which we, uh, we can read in our scriptures, yeah. which I think backs up what you said, you know, it could have been available in the mountain once once they were freed from their bondage of each egypt they were able to be so it's not we that we had you know it's based on people and their response uh, this is my opinion and no one has to agree with me but we have precedent for it in other scriptures and in particular the book of mormon and that is I, that my belief is that had the israelites not just washed their bodies and their clothes and all that if they had really prepared themselves in the heart, in their heart, and had really desired to know God, whatever it took, that I believe that if they they would have gone up the mountain with Moses, they would, or the Lord would come down. Either way, I really believe that what would have happened that day is that they would have met God, and it would have been Jesus Christ, even as a brother Jared mm -hmm. and others, and what an amazing thing how much different would the world have been if if the israelites had chosen that path right because it was happening uh, across the water on on the other continent we're having you know it says in the book of Mormon, we, we keep the law of moses but we know that we're looking forward to jesus so there wasn't yeah. that blindness there but that was always the more righteous that were led away and, and were able to accept those things yeah the um, lord knew they would not choose us you know but you mentioned in your video, Doug, something that was interesting because Shane, I, I I wasn't sure on it. Shane kind of came to this idea that maybe God didn't, not maybe, but he didn't really think that God wanted this big physical permanent temple built that Solomon and David wanted to do. He allowed it and his, his, he blessed Solomon's temple like the, with fire, it dwelled on it. They knew God was there. But Shane said, and you said the same thing. The tabernacle was temporary. It was a temporary tent because it was not to be a permanent thing. It was just yeah. to point them to Jesus. And here we read, uh, this is Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr we read about really in the New Testament, was stoned for saying that, uh, well, let's read it here. Uh, verse 44, Acts, I think it's chapter 1 or 2, Acts oh, 7. Um our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. That's one of the, the words for the tabernacle was, was the tabernacle of witness. 
as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought it with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, and who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, <clears throat> as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place for my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now betrayers and murderers? So... Wow, he just told yeah. them the temple's not holy. God doesn't dwell there, right? And boom, yeah. killed. Well, my wife and I were just watching a YouTube video the other day where the LDS was talking about uh, their temples, and they were talking about all the beautiful temples and all these different places, and they said all these temples and all these different places around the world, that this is the place where God dwells. And my wife thought, wow, how limiting, you know? Um, yeah, when I came, uh, when I was first... Um, told that I was called to be a teacher and I knew from, I had already had an experience with the Lord and I knew I was going to be called to be a teacher. And I thought, boy, I better know my scriptures. So I started with the Bible and I read from the very beginning all the way through. And I did it with all three books. And as I was reading, you know, in the old Testament, one thing that hit me was that, you know, they had no king. The Israelites had no king. They had judges. They had prophets. And they wanted a king. And the Lord said, no, you shouldn't have a king. And they're like, well, but we really think it'd be a good idea. And he's like, okay, here's your king. Now, here's the thing. We're so not like God. Uh, God does not throw us away. And he'll even give us the thing that we want, even though it's not what he wants, and still work with this. He'll still work with us, you know. But we have to be careful of this because this is a lesson. And this is the hard lesson I think Joseph Smith had to learn the hard way. And all of us do, actually, is that God will go ahead and give you a revelation. If you're wanting something, don't ask contrary to what he's already told you. That is a dangerous thing right there. You're going to get something you shouldn't have. And that is to our condemnation. And yet God doesn't throw us away. That's how loving and kind he is. So he said, no, I don't want you to have a king. You shouldn't have a king. You'd be better off without one. Well, we really like to have one. Okay, here you go. And when I got to the place where David was asking about building God a better house, because, oh, you shouldn't live in this shabby tent, you know. Oh, this is this is not grand enough for God. And God and all is the basically, other gods had big temples built to them. Right? We and need God, God says to him, literally very close, I believe, to what, uh, Stephen is saying there that he or Stephen he's saying uh like how are you gonna how can you contain God I you know the earth itself can't fulfill me and and yet David is like whoa I really want to do it and he's like I don't need that you know the prophet's speaking to him for God and saying I don't need that and David's like well I'd really like to and he's like okay well your son will build it then so, yeah, I, I, first thing I realized, like, wow, this is just like them wanting a king. They wanted to have a temple. 
and, and, you know, recently been thinking about it, like, you know, why the tent? And, and it really hit me, like Shane said, that it was meant to be temporary. It, it was by its very appearance to give you the idea, this is a temporary situation. When they built a temple, especially a glorious temple that was designed to last forever. Well, it didn't last forever. It was taken down and destroyed, but it could have. It could have lasted for a very long time. Mm -hmm. The idea was, let's make this permanent. And that is the religion of the Jews, how it got corrupted. We're going to make this permanent. And then it dwarfed into the satanic version of Christ's church or God's religion. And that's what Jesus was met with. When he came, he came to do away with the temple. He came away to do with the temple religion and the sacrifices. I'm going to take care of all this now. And so that put him at odds with the, the religion of the Jews right away, because this temple is here to stay. You know, they don't, they're not going to entertain that notion at all. Yep. Uh, once it was permanent, you, you, uh, you see the corruption and where it ended up by the time Jesus got here. It was no longer that, that humble tent where the priest went in and, and where the fire and the smoke resided. It was that had long since passed. Well, uh, going back to just a couple more scriptures, and then we're going to get into um, why we why you're here today. Talk about priesthood. <laughs> so Paul calls us the temple in First Corinthians. Know you not that you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. I am the temple of God, supposed to be. And that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Okay, so what fellowship does Christ with, you know, evil? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's Paul again from a different, uh, a different place and letter. So Jesus in America tells us what we are to be doing now. We must offer a sacrifice, not of a lamb, not of an animal, but of a broken heart and contrite spirit. So Ether says, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I can't hardly read these words without feeling <laughs> every time I read them. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them is. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father, the Father in me, and in me hath the Father glorified his name. I came unto my own, and my own received me not, and the scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. As many as have received me, to them have I given to become the sons of God. And even so will I to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by, my, by me redemption cometh, and in me is the law of Moses fulfilled. I am the light and life of the world. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And you shall offer up unto me no more shedding blood. Your sacrifices, your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none, none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And you shall offer for me a sacrifice, a broken heart, and a contrite spirit. Down here it says, You shall rend that veil of unbelief, 
O ye Gentiles, I will show unto you the greater things, the knowledge which is hid up because of unbelief. Come unto me, O ye house of Israel, it shall be made manifest unto you how great things the Father has laid up for you from the foundation of the world. And it hath not come unto you because of your unbelief. Behold, rend that veil of unbelief. That is so beautiful. It says, Then you shall know that the Father has remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. Mm-hmm. And we are waiting for, for that to take place. So there's other things here. I think uh, I just want to make, make those connections that something happened when Jesus died that now we're referred to as lively stones. We're the house of God. He says we are his temple. He wants to dwell in us. The veil is rent. The only thing prohibiting that is unbelief. Yeah, and since probably there'll be a stoning arranged for me at some point in the near future anyway, I'll I'll go ahead and say something, and I pose a, a possibility that um, maybe people won't be excited about. But, um, you know, one of the things that when I would read the prophets— and I also would receive spiritual dreams from the Lord for the longest time. That was one of the main ways he would speak to me. I'd get these spiritual dreams. And my big mistake that he had to teach me over time is I always took every prophecy and all the wording and these dreams literally. I was always taking them very literally. And I would later find out that it was spiritually symbolic or metaphoric in some way. And um, I kind of wonder if... Joseph Smith did not, in fact, receive word from the Lord about some things that maybe he mistook as being literal. Um, I'm looking at the temple lot here in Independence. I go there frequently. I will go and, and just stand there and pray and think about it. And I ponder, as you look around, you see these structures built everywhere by other denominations of Mormonism and just trying to get as close as they can. They're all surrounding this plot of land, piece of grass in the middle of all this. And they've never been able to build the temple. The temple lot, they had received a, a message that they were supposed to build it. They dug out the ground. They dug out the foundation. They started setting the foundation for it and everything. And this was in the, was the early 1900s. And, uh, that was uh, when Joseph Luff from the RLDS church came to them and as a prophet of the Lord was sent. And he said, you will not be allowed to build this temple. And sure enough, a division happened in that congregation, not in the congregation, but in the church itself. In fact, there was a deception. There was a whole splinter group. Uh, they got a whole book of scriptures with some angel um, and the whole church split and nobody could agree on anything and everything fell apart. And they filled in the ground where they dug into the foundation and that was it. And I look at that piece of ground and I wonder if Joseph misunderstood about temple and the idea of a temple. And now we have a whole temple religion, especially when you look at the LDS church and we're all expecting a building on this plot of ground. Now, maybe there will be, but, I can't help but have this thought keep coming into my mind, especially when you read where the, where the Lord says, how are you going to build a house for me? What, what, how are you going to contain me? You know, we have scriptures where it says that 
the the Savior, the Lord Christ, will come suddenly to his temple. And we always take that very literally. He's going to suddenly come and he will appear in the temple. Part of me wonders if when he comes, if there'll be no building there at all, but we'll just be standing there waiting his arrival and we're his temple. Yeah, there. We, I hope we we get into that. That is a very uh, it's an interesting scripture when you look at why why is there this thought? But you know, in Revelation, it also says there'll be no temple uh, that God that God and Jesus will be there, and they will be the light. And uh, I I don't go too close to Revelation because uh, I'm just I'm a small boat, and I'm that's way too deep seas for, for me. But you know, so I very cautiously walk there, but yeah. But you know, it, it was a shocker to me too when I was reading the Book of Revelation to see that John had a vision of the New Jerusalem, and he just very specifically writes, "And there was no temple therein." Right. When Revelation talks about the temple, from what little I know, is it's talking about the the heavenly temple, uh, you know, even the pattern that Moses saw maybe in the mountain, but but not, but at the end when it yeah when, the abode of God yeah when it and that's all you know symbolism and things, but in the end when God returns and and Jesus is here with us, um, we will well anyway so we'll we'll talk we'll we'll, we'll parse some of that stuff out in our I think in our temple episodes, but let's get back now to priesthood, Doug. So Jesus death temple veil is rent no longer a need for a priest to go into the holy of holies joseph gave a section of scripture section 83 and it talks about it, it it's it's one probably of the most popular if not the most popular one in the doctrine and covenants most often quoted at least in the top four or five it talks about the ironic priesthood and, and and priesthood but john the baptist so you and I may differ on this. It doesn't matter. I, I see a lot of problems with this, with this section with maybe little smidgens of truth thrown in, but, but one thing, even, even I don't like to use DNC scriptures to make a point because I'm not sure on which, what parts are from God and which aren't or how it all meshes, but using it as its own thing, logically, some things don't make sense. And what did Joseph right in section 83 about John the Baptist in priesthood? Well, um, he indicates that, uh, I don't know if you've got that scripture to put up, but he indicates that uh, the that because they chose uh, to not have that relationship that we talked about with him, and that they instead turned to idolatry. You know, we had Aaron build them uh, an idol, that in his wrath, he did not let them enter into his rest. And he says, and he uh, had the law of Moses continue with the house of Aaron in his wrath. So this is interesting because the concept of this is that um, the priesthood and the law and all this is something that was maybe not exactly what he was wanting to do here um, because it's something in his wrath. And, that um, because, and then it says that uh, and tell John that he caused it to continue with the house of Aaron until John. Um, when I read that originally, you know, this is one of these, section 83 is one of these 
revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants that when I was reading it and asking the Holy Spirit to to share with me and to teach me out of that book, I was surprised because I had this wonderful experience in the Bible. I had this amazing experience in the Book of Mormon with the Holy Spirit teaching me. When I got into the Doctrine and Covenants, it started out okay. And then it was like an, a roller coaster, and I couldn't figure out what's going on because the Holy Spirit would completely depart from Revelations. And sometimes I would feel him, sometimes he was gone. And the further along I got in the Doctrine and Covenants, the more the Spirit was gone from it. This, I believe, was one of the revelations that um, there were things in there that I was discerning that were true. Uh, and this was that part. This is one of the parts that I discerned there was truth in. But there was... It was a different kind of spirit. Something was going on here. And as I read through it, you know, today, it, it seems to be a mix of things. There's there's a little bit of truth in here. There's a lot of things that aren't quite right and are contrary, really, to other scriptures. And so it's one of these, it's an yeah. odd thing that way. But even so, um, the Holy Spirit just seemed to highlight that verse right there to me as if, here was a truth that I could take. So regardless of where, what the source of this revelation is, because, you know, Satan will quote truth to you. He will tell you truth to get you to buy lies. That's part of, that's his MO. We need to understand that. So people, we have a natural truth detector in us and we'll read things. And I'm like, well, that feels true to me. And Satan knows that he knows us. He's known us for thousands of years. He uses that. So he always puts truths in there so your spirit latches on to it. And then typically we don't know enough to go, well, there could be truth there, but the rest of this isn't right. We just tend to think, well, I feel like I got a witness of this and we buy the whole package. But in any case, there's truth here. And it says that he caused the law and this priesthood of Aaron and all this to continue in wrath until John. And I do believe there was a, definitely a huge change that happened at that point with John. So, and this was, and this is interesting to me because this is where I don't, I don't see the logical link, uh, you know, say Joseph is giving this, say it's revelation from God. And yet later, and, and I'm, we'll talk about this later, Joseph states that John the Baptist came and gave him an ironic priesthood. And yeah. yet here it says that, 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 well, first of all, Aaronic priest is kind of a misnomer. It's here it says it was talking about the, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, right? The house of Aaron, the, the ones so. working in the temple, it seems mm -hmm. uh, that they would continue until John. And so John is the forerunner of Jesus. He's maybe even in the similitude, he he's preparing the way for this new great last high priest to come. So there is no mm -hmm. reason for any more quote uh I guess you call it ironic priesthood. It's I don't know what the Bible calls it that, but the Doctrine and Covenants does. So until but the, Bible, but the Book of Mormon does it, right? Well, all of the high priests, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So that was so when we're talking about ironic priesthood. That's that's in an interesting little bullet point there. You also brought out uh, and and really clarified. Uh, Mark uh, Curtis from Hemlock Knots was on uh, months and months ago. I don't know, maybe close to a year ago now. Mm -hmm. And I was hearing for the first time uh, what I've found is like many Bible scholars, it's a thing that there's different sources for the Old Testament uh, that we have now. And this for the, for the Pentateuch, anyway, that's the first five books. Of the, yeah. Yeah. 
So the ones that wrote most of the stuff on priesthood, the book of Leviticus, and uh, was the priestly source. And that happened somewhere between 720 and, and 600. 500. Yeah, 500. Yeah. Very easily could have been added before, after. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, before Lehi left or, Jerusalem. Or something. Yep. And yeah. that's so we, we have no record of this in the Book of Mormon whatsoever. Yeah, by by what we can the best that they can assess, it looks like almost the almost the entirety of the book of Leviticus was written after uh, Israel or the Jews came out of uh, captivity with Babylon. So this is before this is after Lehi and his family have left because they left before uh, that that great captivity that took place um, or at least the greater captivity where Babylon comes and just literally destroys Jerusalem and carries the rest of everybody away. Um, so, yeah, what's interesting is they, uh, you know, from all appearances then they would not have had most of what we consider the book of Leviticus. And actually there were, there were things in the book of Exodus and some other things that were changed by this priestly group. So they wouldn't have had that information they would have had instead the brass plates. The brass plates would have been uncorrupted by that. And um, boy, it's just a, an amazing piece of the puzzle to come in because it explains so many things. It explains why the Book of Mormon never mentions the Aaronic priesthood. Not once. It never even mentions Aaron. And the fact that the Book of Mormon seems to be indicating that Moses was a descendant of Joseph that he was probably an Ephraim might. Where does that? Uh, yeah, I heard that. I wanted to ask you about that. What? Uh, because I've heard this a couple of times, but it's never concrete. It's kind of like alludes to. So what? Where is that in the bookmark? What, uh, I believe. Uh, well, you got me. You got me unprepared. But that's I believe Second Nephi. Um, or it's just gonna, the context of it. What um, or how we get to that conclusion? Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, actually, this is the prophecy about the choice seer that is going to come in the last days that is of the seed of Lehi okay. and specifically of his youngest son, Joseph. And Lehi is speaking to his youngest son, Joseph, and he's telling him about prophecies that Joseph of Egypt gave. And Joseph of Egypt had two great prophecies about two descendants of his that would come out of his seed. And one of them is... Uh, Moses and mm -hmm. that prophecy talks about a Moses. And then the other one is this choice seer who will come out of the seed of Lehi specifically. And so it seems to be indicating Moses is of, uh, he is a Josephite. He is not a Levite. Okay. And so, and then that makes sense. That makes other pieces of puzzles comes together. For example, we find in the Bible not in the inspired version alone, this is in the King James, that when they came out of Egypt, Moses carried the bones of Joseph. He took his bones and brought them out of Egypt to take them into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Well, it is a longstanding tradition. You can check with any scholars, Israelite, ancient Israelite, Jews, only a descendant of that person carries the bones out. So that's an indication. 
So what happens is this priestly group, after they come out of captivity in Babylon, they start adding a lot of stuff to the Pentateuch. And there's this huge reformation. And suddenly there's a whole lot more sacrifices that benefit specifically the descendants of Aaron because they get to reap, reap all the benefits of it. And they, they build all these additional sacrifices in addition to the, the lamb that without blemish, just bulls and birds and just on and on and on. And it's just a continual thing. But they also went into the book of Exodus and they changed that Miriam and Aaron were siblings to Moses. That didn't exist before that. And so that would make Moses, right? It would make him a Levite, not a Josephite. Um, so the Book of Mormon seems to be ignorant of that fact. And I guess people could point that out as a flaw in the Book of Mormon. But I see it as positive proof of something that Joseph wouldn't have known. And that is definitely that there's something that happened here in the Pentateuch in these five books yeah. that the priestly group made some changes. Yeah, I know that this is a lot of, of supposition, and but we do have some very concrete stuff that makes you go, hmm. But I, you yeah. know, Moses came down off the mountain with his face shining uh, in the similitude of this uh, high priest, you know, this holy priest. We see this in the in the Old Testament, you know, and, and I wonder, you know, did something happen where there was this one priesthood moses was the similitude like we see in the book of mormon and all of a sudden we have this whole thing with aaron and you know the guy that just built the golden calf the false idol that he's now uh working in the yeah in the tent or was it originally just moses and and those and i don't know but that's a lot of we don't know we don't know what could have been changed but we do know that moses has a different kind of priesthood he doesn't have a lineal priesthood it's not about lineage uh so He's probably after the order of the Son of God, just like the other high priests that are in the Book of Mormon. They're all after the order of the Son of God, which is also called the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, so you you brought that out. It's in in RLDS, it's Alma 9, and in LDS, Alma 13, but it's where the actual word priesthood is used. The only place where the word priesthood is ever used in the Book of Mormon. But to Uh, me, so what you showed in your video, and I'll... I'll put it in my language. You tell me where I'm wrong. That through time, God, uh, before Jesus, and the first first chapter of Hebrews says, in times of past, God spoke to us through the prophets. And now in these days, he speaks to us through Jesus. You know, that's right. Matter of fact, I got that pulled up here. Let's let's read that because this is an important important transition, I think. Uh, And this is King James. So, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And this is really cool. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This uh, this scripture, uh, listen to the Bible project, these Hebrew words and meanings in here is actually, it, it's like if you take a king's ring and put it into hot wax, that mm-hmm. image, that word means that exact image, that replica. Christ is the express image of the glory of God. So God's 
image is expressed to us through Jesus. That's why yeah. Jesus is God, um, yeah. and and it's one God, and you you get that in Hebrews. But right, so in the old times, he spoke through the prophets. These days, he speaks unto us by the Son. So That's there's, right. there's a change there. So the priesthood in the Book of Mormon, it seems, um, when they would have what they would call a high priest, it says it's mm -hmm. because of their faith. Yes. That they were ordained. I don't know if it says they were ordained by God himself by God to, to give the, the words to the people. Yeah. It specifically, it says to, yeah. to I have all the nine. I okay, think. cool. Hold up here. <laughs> um, that is that uh, maybe right about here. <laughs> there we are. Um, the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order. Mm -hmm. So not after Aaron, yep. not after, but after his holy order, the, yep. the son of God. Yeah. Which he also said was also known as the order of Melchizedek. So we're talking about Melchizedek uh, priesthood. Um, it's not the order of the son of God. Interesting thing about Melchizedek. And there's a really good, um, there's really good, teachings on this from the Bible project who, who I think are just the, the epitome of understanding old Testament in the way it should pointing to Jesus. Yeah. They said that, um, Melchizedek is a person. So many people suppose about, but almost purposely vague. It doesn't say where he comes from. It doesn't say where he went. It says he was a priest and king over Salem or Jerusalem. And he was just simply presented that way as a type and shadow. Yeah, he was an example. Mm -hmm. This is this is a really, what I think he was is supposed to be probably the best example we can find of what this Christ will be. And that's, I think, why they used him sometimes as that example and now, right, and 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 that's why I think it is. It, it, he comes on as this similitude of Jesus. Um, interestingly, though, Joseph Smith tries to give him a backstory, and that's just not found anywhere else. Where you know, as a kid, he was ripping heads off lions and quenching, you know, makes him into yeah. something. But that's that's not well, found anywhere else in scripture. Melchizedek isn't important ultimately. The only reason why he's mentioned in scriptures is because we had not yet seen Christ. And so he was mentioned, you know, and then we get into Hebrews and that's the last time we'll, we'll have him mentioned there. And that is only to make sure that we understand there's been a major change and a shift here. There was something that went on before you have men set up and a similitude of Christ to point to him. Uh, but now something has changed and now Christ is that one that we will look to. That is a major seminal point, uh, a changeover right there. And that's what Alma talks about. And it's what we see in third Nephi take place. Yeah. Uh, it goes on to talk about these, these priests, but it, it's very specifically ordained after the order of his son, um, that people might know in what manner to look forward to his son. So that was the purpose. So that's, Absolutely. that's the priesthood mentioned in the book of Mormon. It Absolutely. was, and that is the only simple. priesthood, the only priesthood. Yeah. They were high priests specifically. That's the only priesthood that, it, that, that existed. Now there were ministries. There were ministries. There were teachers. There's people that did various ministries uh, in the church. You can call it the church or whatever among people, 
people who were sent out to preach repentance and 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 talk about Christ and try to convert people. Uh, but they were not considered priesthood. It's only mentioned priesthood once. It's an Alma, and it is only in the context of high priests. Those high priests are not ordained by any man. And I've always understood that directly from the Lord, actually. The high priest should never be ordained by any man. Uh, all of these high priests, according to Alma, were ordained directly by God himself. And so that they will know, and that is their only purpose, to point to Christ and know what manner in which to expect that Christ will come and, and how he will be. So, so if that's the case, if that's their job, once he comes, what is their job after that? Mm -hmm.